And it turns out it was the right call. I, feel, I still feel, I still stand by the decision, but it was a very difficult choice to say, because I finally had a contact. I finally had something, a book was going to come out and I was going to debut. It was not an easy call to make. Welcome to Queries, Qualms, and Quirks, the weekly podcast that asks published authors to share their successful query letter and discuss their journey from first spark to date of publication. I am your host, author Sarah Nicholas, and literary agent Sarah N. Fisk. David R. Slayton grew up outside of Guthrie, Oklahoma, where finding fantasy novels was pretty challenging and finding fantasy novels with diverse characters was downright impossible. David's debut, White Trash Warlock, was published in 2020 by Blackstone Publishing and was a finalist for the Colorado Book Award. So please welcome David to the show. Hello. Hi, how are you, sir? Hi, thanks so much for coming on today and sharing your journey with my listeners. So today we're going to talk about your publishing journey, and we're going to start by going kind of all the way back to the beginning. When did you first start getting interested in writing, and then how long did it take from there before you started getting serious about pursuing publication? Well, I think like a lot of people, I started out with what you could consider fan fiction before fan fiction was really a thing because I'm just that old. So when I, you know, I was a little kid, I was loving things like the Star Wars movies and I wanted to write books based in that universe. And then as I got older, my mother was very religious and I wasn't allowed to read anything secular. I wasn't allowed to consume any secular media. However, she had a soft spot for Star Trek and she would buy me Star Trek novels. And I began to understand that there was actually, uh, you know, IP product out there that people, you could write a book and publish a book in a universe like Star Wars or Star Trek. So the first book I ever tried to write was actually a Star Trek novel. Mm. And that didn't work Mm -hmm. because I wanted to write fantasy. And essentially through my journey of life, being a high school dropout and the life that I had in Oklahoma, I just had to put writing aside. It was a dream that kept getting deferred. And finally, I managed to make it to Denver, Colorado, where I graduated college and got, you know, I got my GED, went on to get a couple of college degrees and achieved a place in financial, you know, food security where I could actually take the time to write. And I began working on novels and the books that I'd always wanted to read, as well as the books that had been growing in my brain, wanting to be written. And I started with a horrible, horrible brick of a 200,000 word epic fantasy novel, as <laughs> so many writers do. I'm sure mm-hmm. as an agent, you get those queries. But I managed to finish it, and that was still something. It was a terrible book that shall never see the light of day. But I did learn a lot, um, and I even queried agents. I queried Kristen Nelson, of all people, and got a very polite rejection, as I should have. That was an <laughs> awful book. And then from there, I just kept writing book after book until I finally reached a publishing contract, which got canceled for other complicated reasons. And then I sold White Trash Warlock to Blackstone. So, All right. And we'll get more into more detail about that in a minute. Can you tell me more about the moment that you realized that you wanted to be a published author, that, you know, you wanted to see your name on a book cover and also what you thought that being a published author might look like at that point for you? Well, I was very lucky that I had an aunt who was a writer. I have an aunt that's a writer, I should say. She was the first person in my life to write a book. And she was able to publish a couple of small Christian fiction books when I was a kid. And she's the first person that said to me, it's very hard to write a book. It's even harder to publish a book. 
And this was before self-publishing was a thing at all. And that kind of gave me this goalpost of something that, hey, this, this is an achievable dream, but it's a hard one. And that kind of put the idea in my head early on. And I was always the kind of kid who lived in his head. I would play with my toys and make up new stories. So I, the action figures and things that I had, I would be creating new characters for them and making new roles for them. And I would be building cities in the mud outside the trailer in Guthrie and telling stories about the buildings and the worlds that I was making. So there was this part of my brain that was already world building and was already creating characters and stories. It just took me a long time to learn how to overcome my education gaps and find the support and ability to convert that into novels and convert that into a, a readable novel that someone would want to actually acquire or read, you know, pay money, put in front of their face. For <laughs> so how did you go about learning more about the publishing industry? Like how to query, how to write a query, all those different things. I was really lost at the time I started internet research first. So I began Googling, figuring it out, um, looking at websites. Again, I was very grateful to Kristen Nelson because she pub she put up things like Gail Carriger's query letter that got her, her contract for Solus, other agents doing similar things, learning to understand the process. My That same aunt had fallen for a scammer agent at one point in the 90s. So I had somebody with some idea of, hey, watch out for these things. I'll always be eternally grateful to Anne Crispin and Victoria Strauss for Writer Beware. And a lot of people don't know that Anne Crispin or AC Crispin wrote Star Trek novels. So again, I had a segue there from somebody I already admired into understanding the publishing process. And that led me to finally figure out I need to go to a conference. Mm. And I went to a conference in New York, Backspace, which is now defunct and learned an enormous amount. But the most important thing is that I met people. I met other writers who have become critical dear friends and people who were on the same publishing journey. And it's exciting because Barbara Ann Wright, Helen Corcoran, um, Alex J. Lore are all now published. So many of us have moved on and have kept up with the dream. Others have uh, are still trying. Others have you know moved on to different dreams from our little class. But we got to pitch agents face-to-face. -face. We got to have them read our query letters. I had no idea what I was doing, so I wrote a query letter for a book I hadn't finished <laughs> and tried to adapt. It all just kind of worked out. And again, I've made contacts and friends there like Sarah J. Henry, who have become lifetime friends. A little bit like an idiot then. I, I came back home and said, okay, now I know more. Let's go write. Let's go read more books. Write to the market a bit more. Don't look at comps and things that are older look at what in the genre you're writing is selling now, selling a few years ago. You need to be writing that way. Don't go to back to the books of your childhood, which I think is, again, something that a lot of epic fantasy writers do, is we tend to go back to the books we love, and those books might be ancient by this point. Mm -hmm. You know, Tolkien probably wouldn't sell today, because just think of the query letter for that. I'm, here, I'm a middle-aged hobbit, you know, with an invisible ring. Um, just think about the query letter for how the hobbit would look, look today. <laughs> So then I realized that I have amazing writing conferences here in the Denver area, the Pikes Peak Writers Conference, the Rocky Mountain Fiction Writers Conference that are local to me. So I don't need to go to New York. I don't need to spend a ton of money to travel when I can just drive you know, up to the old Stapleton neighborhood and attend a conference there. And that has allowed me to build more of a found family of writers that you know, understand what I'm going through 
and as well as learn from agents and editors, workshops, teach at the, both of those conferences now, which I'm very honored to get the chance to share what I've learned and my experience with those authors. And at some point, I made a whole group of friends from that. And then I took my Backspace friends and made some of them come and squished those two groups together. So <laughs> it's kind of cool to see them all interacting and knowing each other. It's cool to hear you got so much out of conferences and now you teach workshops on how to get more out of conferences. I teach conference etiquette too, because we are a weird introverted bunch writers. So I like to be able to be like, this is how to conference well. This is how not to be the creep that slides your dot in your manuscript under the bathroom stall door. All those little things. So can you give us more detail about your journey from deciding you wanted to be an author to signing your first book contract? So my journey was really fraught. I had a lot of rejection. I had a lot of challenge. I I wrote that first book that was terrible, didn't even get me anywhere, but I learned a lot writing it, which is one of the reasons I encourage people to constantly finish books. While you're querying, while you're on submission, when you get an agent, write the next book. That will keep you from losing your mind, frankly. And that's what I did, is I would get one thing out there and I'd try something different. It was also important to try different things. So if epic fantasy wasn't working, which it wasn't, I tried urban fantasy. One of my epic fantasies, though, I was about ready to box it. I was about ready to trunk it because it just hadn't gotten an agent. It wasn't moving anywhere. And it got me an agent. And that was great. So when that book got me an agent, I was already halfway through finishing the next one. And we pitched it. We took it out on submission. And nothing. Crickets. Um, I got some rejections, but nothing I could really use in feedback, which is very hard. That rejection's tough because... It, it starts to play on your self-esteem. It starts to play on your self-confidence. Am I a bad writer? Is it me? Is it the book? And there's, it's kind of a bit of an echo chamber. And even though you have an agent telling you, no, it's a good book, without an editor kind of backing that up and, and offering on it, I had a couple of editors offer me revise and resubmits, R&R, you'll hear the term, and they just went nowhere. And that was even more damaging because what was happening was I was going out and spending enormous time sink time to revise a, a book and then to have them say, oh, never mind. So it's very, it's very much like um, wanting to go out on a date with somebody and they're like, oh, if you just cut your hair a certain way or if you just do this and then make that change, then they said, never mind. You know, I still don't want to go out with you. And, and you know, we're, we're told not to take it personally, but you do. It's very, it's very hard. You know, it's like your baby. <laughs> Send it out into the world and it comes home with a black eye. You're going to have feelings. So after several years of that and kind of communication issues, I, w- I wasn't getting anywhere. So I realized that I needed to change agents, which was probably the hardest decision I've ever made in publishing. Mm-hmm. I just wasn't getting the feedback that I needed. I didn't. I, I knew something was wrong. At that point, I had hired a freelance editor and was working with somebody who could level up my writing like a coach. I was very selective about who I chose because I knew I needed to know them well from conferences. I needed to know what they could do for me. So that money wasn't going to be wasted. I didn't want a book doctor for that manuscript. I wanted somebody who could go in and help me isolate what was wrong in my writing. And that was incredibly useful. That helped me generate a much better manuscript, helped me generate much better books. But while all that was happening, my submissions weren't going anywhere. I just was not making progress. And I realized that I just didn't have the right agent and our relationship just wasn't a good fit. So I took the very difficult decision of parting ways with my agent. One of the reasons that's so hard is getting an agent is very difficult. And I had gone through so much to get an agent that 
some people were like, of course you need to part ways. Other people like, are you crazy? You won't get another agent if you get rid of one. It's a, it was a very difficult decision. And I could, one night I just couldn't sleep. I came home and I was trying to sleep and my body just would not let me sleep. And finally, like one in the morning, I said, I, I just got it. I got to get off the fence. So I rolled over, I sent the email and said, I'm sorry, but I've got to part ways. And then my body said, now you can rest. Wow. My gut and my instinct was saying, you need to make this difficult decision. And I know you don't want to. And then I found another agent, somebody that I had contact that I had had contact with and somebody that I really respected. And we went out on submission and I had a deal very quickly. So I was like, okay, that very negative had a very fast rebound payoff. Mm-hmm. But all this time I'm writing, every time I'm getting rejected, every time I'm on submission, every time I'm, I'm biting my nails, all, through all of it, I keep writing new books. So at, the, at this point in the game, when I sold my first, when I got my first contract, I had three to four manuscripts completed. Several of them have been rewritten as I learned new tra- techniques, learned new things, again, working with a coach to help me get better and better at certain parts. Then I get a contract and things are looking good. The following spring, um, I pitched, we pitched White Trash Warlock, my first urban fantasy to Blackstone and Blackstone um, said they wanted it. They said, yeah, we love, we like this. Um, I was over the moon and everything in publishing moves at this incredibly glacial pace. Mm-hmm. So if you're querying or you're on submission, or even if you get, yes, we want this, all of these stages are anywhere from three to six months. You just have to keep writing to not lose your mind because I'm sitting here going, we want this. And we got the call in April. The contract was not finalized until September. Mm-hmm. So that's about a four or five month gap between, yes, we want it to here's the paper for you to sign. And that whole time that's happening, is it going to happen? Is something going to go wrong? Mm-hmm. So while I'm waiting on that contract to happen, the publisher from my first book started to have some problems and I had to make the next most difficult decision in my writing career, which was to cancel the contract. Mm. And that was heartbreaking. It's a book that I love. It still hasn't found a home, but again, it was another one of those. This time I was a little faster to listen to my gut because my gut said, you got to pull the trigger. You have to do this. And I did. And it turns out it was the right call. I I still feel, I still stand by the decision, but it was a very difficult choice to say, because I finally had a contract. I finally had something, a book was going to come out and I was going <laughs> to debut. It was not an easy call to make. And at the time I was still waiting on the warlock contract to finalize. So it was very much a bird in the hand situation where I know this book is going to happen next year. I'm not entirely sure this other book is going to happen, mm-hmm. but you have to make tough calls. And those, those were two very tough calls I had to make. And of course, through all this, again, I have other books on submission. Rejections are still coming. It's one thing I think that newer writers need to understand. The rejection never stops. You get it. You get an agent. And if you've seen um, read Ready Player One or seen the movie, it's the first gate. <laughs> the agent's the first gate. Then you've got to sell the book. And then you but you're always trying for the next thing. You're always passing gates. And, you know, having an agent for a number of years and not having a sale was just this terrible grinding process on my self-esteem and on my writing. But through it all, I kept persisting. I kept practicing. And I am very tired. (laughs) 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 It's been a very tired, long process, but I'm very happy and I feel so grateful 
to be here at the same time. You know, I thought it was going to be years ago. Mm-hmm. I, I debuted in 2020 and it was, I thought it was going to be probably 10 years before that when I had a book, a book out. It took me a lot longer to get into trad than I thought it would. And it's like uh, shoots and ladders. You kept hitting the shoots to go back. <laughs> yeah. And some of it's just luck. A lot of it is luck and timing. Um, you, you know, it's the right combination of people and the right combination of the market that you can't control. All right. This is the point in the podcast where we usually have the author read their query letter, but you said you don't have access to your query letters anymore. What happened there? Well, so I had queried my first agent with a book that got me the agent, but now that, and then my next query was for a completely different book. (laughs) So when I got my second agent, and at this point, I'm trying to remember which book landed me the second agent because again there was the whole weird contract cancellation <laughs> like was it that one it wasn't white trash warlock because that book wasn't done yet so how has your experience been since signing that contract especially let us know if there were any surprises along the way the surprises never stop and the rejection strong too so i signed a three book contract with blackstone for white trash warlock and it's two sequels trailer park trickster which is already out and deadbeat druid comes out in october there's my gratuitous plug. <laughs> and working with Blackstone has been a phenomenal experience. Their marketing department is incredible. They're very agile on social media. They're just really cool people. They also, um, just to kind of explain why I love them, they saw the supply chain problems happening in paper and in publishing and said, we're going to avoid that noise by installing a printing press there in Ashland, Oregon, where they're located. Hmm. So... If you buy a copy of Trailer Park Trickster, it's printed in Oregon oh. with local with local labor there. You know they they try to hire as much local labor and bring keep the money there in Medford as possible, and just think that's the coolest thing ever. And they're just awesome, also just awesome people with a lot of um, smart ideas. I just I just think they're the greatest. Um, and but while that was going on, when you're writing a series, so I I completed Debbie Druid about a year ago. And of course the pandemic hit and there was a lot of personal things happening, like my, my parents passing away and all this stuff that happened inside of this publishing journey. I was still writing other books and still submitting other projects and still getting rejections. Remember, I have all these books now. So now I have like eight books because I'm always writing, but you know, and my agent is still submitting projects to houses, getting rejections. And I still have like that, epic fantasy out there that I would love to see find a home someday and it just hasn't found it yet. So the surprises have been, yes, there's been incredible moments of getting to connect with readers. And that's been such an amazing thing. The mo- I think the most rewarding surprise, because I did debut in 2020, I debuted in the middle of the pandemic, mm-hmm. which meant there were no live events. There's no way to meet people, to make eye contact, to figure out, is this going anywhere? <laughs> Do people like it? Is it garbage? Like, I'm just kind of in this weird state of, it's very hard to, to gauge from things like, you know, social media, how the book is being received. And getting emails from readers has been probably the most incredible surprise, especially if they're a reader like me. Say, so, oh, I grew up gay and rural. I grew up poor and rural. And I wanted to email you and tell you how much it meant to me that you wrote this book. Mm. That has meant the world to me in pleasant surprises. There's also been other rejections. <laughs> I got an R&R in the middle of that. And by that point, I had R&R trauma. 
(laughs) (laughs) Again, I had one editor who kept the book. I think she put it through two years of R&R before she found it. Oh my gosh. And it was like three times. She kept saying almost, almost. And it was, it was like Lucy with the football. It just, it really started. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So when we got an R&R on that book, I had, I had completely stripped it down working with my coach. I took it all the way apart again. So this is a good plot. This is a good character. These are good, these are good things. It's a lot like refinishing a piece of wood. You just keep painting over it and painting over it. You lose the grain, you lose the shape of it. That's exactly how that story felt at some point. I had lost Mm -hmm. it because of all those layers of editing from all the R&Rs to try to make different editors happy. So I just took it apart, started from scratch. I threw out every single piece of writing and just rewrote the whole darn book using all the skills I had now. And then they R'd and R'd it. Oh, no. (laughs) And I'm like... This is my last R and R. I will take one because I trust this editor. I like this. Um, I like these people a lot. I will take one R and R. Going to lose my mind. And again, I'm at this point. I'm traditionally published. Um, I'm getting good feedback, but I'm thinking: Do I self-publish this if, if nobody wants it? Mm. And the R and R took, and I'm happy to say that we sold that book to Blackstone. Um, okay, good. <laughs> it's going to come out next year. So my first epic fantasy, Last Son of the Night, will finally emerge. And that book is a lesson in persistence. And when I tell writers, if you feel it's the right book, don't give up on it. This is exactly what I'm talking about, is that book took me so long and so many iterations. It was the right book. And I'm the right author to tell the story. But... I had so much to learn about how to write that book. And I couldn't, the, if I go back and look at the version of it from five years ago, it's not, there's reasons it didn't sell. There's reasons that it wasn't mm-hmm. wanted. And it's like, ah, now I can see it's, it's, it is where it's supposed to be. Carol Berg said this to me, and I thought it was such a meaningful statement of, I couldn't write what I write now in my 30s. I had to be in my 40s. Mm-hmm. I had to reach a certain level of skill and life experience to write those books. And I understand what she means now completely. All right. That was quite a journey. Last week's episode, Shakira Bourne got an R&R uh, and it, she had heard horror stories about R&Rs and was really nervous about it. And then uh, it turned out well for her. If you haven't listened to last week's episode yet, it is time for the quick round. I call it author DNA. Are you a pantser or a plotter? Tweener, I'm right in the middle. I write the five big scenes and then I pants my way between them. Are you an overwriter or an underwriter? Underwriter, which is really, really weird for an epic fantasy author. But yeah. My epic fantasy, Last Son of the Night, is 100,000 words. I'm just finishing up my gay geeky rom-com to catch a geek for Crazy Maple, also out in 2023, we think. And definitely like having to find 10,000 more words. I'm, I'm <laughs> an underwriter. Do you tend to write better in the morning or at nighttime? I would prefer to write better at night, but the truth is I have a day job, which makes me tired. But that means it uses up all the brain points. And I learned this advice from Gail Carriger and Chuck Wendig at one of my first writing conferences, which is I get up at 5 a.m. and I write before my day job, which is why I look so tired. You guys can't see the video, but you can have <laughs> dry bags. What I, I've t- trained myself to get up early and write before work so that my brain is fresh and I can use my best brain points on my writing 
sorry, day job. You, you, get, you get the second, you get the leftovers. <laughs> and, and if otherwise what I'd find is like 5 p.m. when I clock out of my day job, my brain's just toast and it's like I can't watch cartoons. I can't really make good, make good words. When you start with a new story, do you typically start with character or plot or concept or something else first? Always character, though I do have a pile of plots in the back of my brain, which is how White Trash Warlock happened. I had a plot about a doctor in Denver whose wife became possessed, and that was sitting out there without a main character, because the doctor wasn't very interesting, and I don't know anything about being a doctor. And then I was driving through North Carolina one night for my day job, because I traveled for work some, and the trees were creeping over the highway, and there was a full moon, and I heard that Kaleo song, Way Down We Go, and this character just started talking to me, and it was Adam. So I always say Adam was born in the Carolinas because he comes, he came out of that moment. And, and I'm just kind of, you know, doing this very Socratic process of who are you? He's like, well, I'm like you. I grew up in a trailer in the woods of Guthrie. And I, he has a lot of me in him. And I'm like, oh, I like this. Now here's a problem though. I've got this character in Oklahoma, but I don't have a plot. And then I went through my brain and said, wait, you have that whole doctor ghost thing. That's a greater than fantasy angle but it's in Denver. And Adam said, hey, I could go to Denver. And that, <laughs> that's how we got White Trash Warlock of Adam having to travel to Denver to reconnect with his brother, the doctor, who's a bit of a dickhead. Sounds like you have your own like story dice in your head. Kind of. It's, my brain is like a jukebox. And, if you, and sometimes an editor will put something in it and it will spit something out. So To Catch a Geek happened that way. One editor asked, specifically they asked my agent for pitches on... Um, geeky rom-coms and i came up with a pitch and that pitch was rejected and she said no thank you but it was always over here and then at some point another editor said i'd like to see what you've got and she's an amazing editor i wanted to work with for a long time and we just sat down and rolled through all of my weird list of things and to catch a geek popped out and she said that that one please so i am again they kind of stay in the pile until something needs to bring them out. But somebody put a dime in and said, give me a gay geeky rom-com. And that's where that book got generated from. Hmm. Do you prefer coffee or tea? Coffee by far, by the gallon. <laughs> I'm a highly caffeinated person. Part of that is because I have um, ADHD and I help use it to help regulate my brain speeds. I'm probably the one person on the planet that you could feed a venti latte to and he can go to sleep right after. Also, my family is suffers from enormous types of addiction problems, whether it's drugs, alcohol, or other things. So very early on in life, I said, caffeine, that will be mine. And I made a very conscious choice to. So coffee, though I do drink tea, because partly because my doctor's like, dude, how much coffee do you drink? When writing, do you prefer silence or some kind of sound? I prefer silence because otherwise the rhythms creep in. Just like I love audiobooks so much, but if I'm writing... I won't listen to audiobooks or read books in the genre I'm working in. So right now, since I'm wrapping up the rom-com, I can listen to or read fantasy. Though I tend to work a lot more with nonfiction whenever I'm writing anything, because it goes, goes into the com idea compost pile. But I don't listen to music much when I'm writing unless I need it to tune things out. Otherwise, I find my sentences start to match the song. If I do listen to something... It usually is either like a video game soundtrack where I can put on a long loop. I do have playlists for all my books because every once in a while I do need to get in the mood. So I'll listen to 
a soundtrack or a playlist that I've built for the book in order to set my emotional state to match what I need to write for. When it comes to the first draft, are you more of a get it down kind of person or a get it right kind of person? Well, boy, I'm again, just like with the Potter cancer thing, I'm right in the middle. So I use, I've developed an agile project management method for writers that I use for my own process. What that means is every morning I get up and I, Monday through Friday, and I try to write 1,000 to 2,000 words a day. And then I go back at the start of the next day and polish that. And then on the weekend, I can I compile it all and polish it so that I'm trying to generate 10,000 readable, shippable, to use a project management term, words a week, that by the end of the month, I've got half a book, if I'm lucky. And then day job and life happens, and sometimes it comes out more like 20 or 30. But I'm on deadline right now, so I'm mastering lots of words daily. But I, so I tend to, I don't want to get it down the first time. I do believe it's really critical, especially as a new writer, to get to the end of the draft. One of the most important things you can do for yourself is finish the book. One thing I, when I teach at conferences and I talk to people at conferences, one of the biggest things I see holding them up is they write until they hit that 30, 40,000 word slump, which seems to be where most of us get bored with the book or start to doubt whether they can finish it. And then we will go back and start editing it, or we will start a new project. The important, most important thing I think you can learn is to push through and finish the draft. It doesn't matter if it's a complete splat draft, if it's garbage. Once you type the end and the draft is finished, it's like a video game. You'll ding, you'll level up, and then you can fix all that in post. You can fix all that in editing and polishing. I try to only have to need two or three drafts. So I, I try to go back every week and do a little polishing along the way so that I can generate, you know, 10,000 readable words per week. What tools or software do you use to draft? I only work in Microsoft Word, which I know is insane. Um, a lot of people use Scrivener. Uh, it, whatever works for you, it's cool. Because I, I tend to just use Word and I'll leave myself notes using Word's track feature. Also, Scrivener's uh, doc, Word doc compilation feature drives me nuts. It always inserts crap that I have to strip out or it makes it hard. And since the industry standard in publishing is Microsoft Word, I only use Microsoft Word. I also, though, because I am a giant nerd, if you haven't figured that out by now, track everything in a spreadsheet. I use the StoryGrid process. So I architect my book using StoryGrid to track every chapter, word count, emotional shift, and a one or two sentence summary per chapter. And the real beauty of that is by the time I'm done with it, I can take that column, drop it into Word, and there's my synopsis with just a little bit of minimal editing. Because we all hate writing those, right? Do you prefer drafting or revising more? Mm, drafting is way more fun, but you get the book really comes to life in the revision. So which one do you prefer? <laughs> Darn it, it's such a hard question. Because again, Drafting is more fun, but in the revision, that's where I'm like, oh, if I make this little change to the sentence, I'm... So if you could like clone yourself and give one of you a drafting assignment, one of you the revision assignment, would you take the drafting and the revision? I take the revision because I can. I know that's where the book really shines and I wouldn't trust my <laughs> subpar clone with it. <laughs> Do you write in sequential order? Do you hop around? I try to write in sequential order as much as possible because that tends to be how my brain works. And I go back to that story grid and, and if I get stuck or lost, because remember I pants between the big moments, I'll go back and do a little bit of like plotting ahead to keep, to give myself the next bit of runway to use. That said, um, sometimes I just get stuck. I got stuck on To Catch a Geek this weekend and 
I had stuff to do, so I, but I knew the end, so I went ahead and wrote the ending scene, and now I'm working my way towards it. Um, I try to go sequential, but every once in a while, if you get completely stuck again on that 30 to 40,000 word mark, it's okay to skip ahead to the part where you're excited again and then learn how to sew them together. And final quick round question. That's not quick. <laughs> I know. I'm a chatterbox. I warned you. Are you an extrovert or an introvert? I am an introvert, which freaks people out. And I actually teach a conference workshop on finding your inner extrovert. So I come across as an extrovert if all of this hyper chatter has not shown you that. But the truth is, is that I am very much an introvert and that it uses up a lot of power. So when this interview is over tonight and I'm not looking at Sarah's face anymore, I will go hide in the dark and um, play with my imaginary friends because that's all the extroverting I can do. So the show is called Queries, Qualms, and Quirks, and we're going to talk about that second cue now. What were some of the worries that you had on your journey and were they realized? Did you overcome them? How did they shake out? The biggest worry I had is that nobody would want to read what I wrote that these stories about a broke gay witch from Guthrie, Oklahoma, or an epic fantasy with a gay character that's not about being gay or gay trauma wouldn't sell. You know, often when we write a book with a marginalized identity, there's a need to perform our trauma. There's a need to perform. I didn't want to write a book about coming out or AIDS. Um, Those books have been done and they've been done by better people than me. And I also get really frustrated when I read a fantasy book that has a gay character and they're still being called, you know, faggot, or they're still dealing with prejudice. They're still dealing with homophobia or sexism or racism. I, it's like, you know, my world can have those problems without having to put that crap in. I, I read fantasy to escape it. So it always breaks my heart a little bit when I read a fantasy with a gay character, because then I'm like, yay. And then I start reading it and they're dealing with the same shit. I have to, sorry, language. I have to deal with every day. It's like, could we, could I just not? So I thought that those stories wouldn't have a home. And I've been so, I don't use the word very easily, but I've been very blessed to say, to find like Blackstone wants those books and people are wanting to read them. And now for the third cue, do you have any writing quirks? Is there anything about your writing process that you think is interesting or different or unique? I have it. It's very much a ritual to me. So there's get up, make the coffee, feed the cat, um, try to put the cat on mute. Doesn't always work. <laughs> sit down with the coffee and write. There's, there's very much a ritualistic process for it. So I really don't like writing without coffee because it's become such a part of the process to me. It's, it's my little personal quirk in the ritual. And it can be decaf, it can be whatever, but I do I do need like generally a coffee or tea beverage to go with it. And so even if I'm on a plane and I'm like, I got a long flight ahead, I'll see if I can get a, a latte to sit there on the plane to sip while I'm like typing out on my tablet. When you were in the lowest parts of your journey, what kept you going and why did you stick to it? Spite, mostly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's not a bad answer, but you know, it's... It, I would, again, I would go out there and say, I want, a, okay, fine. It's, this, this isn't going to be the book or this isn't going to be, nobody wants this book. And so, but somebody's got to have written it. And then I would go find a book. Okay. Maybe this book is going to speak to what I want to read. And then I would read it and say, nope, there's that prejudice again, or nope, there's that thing, or it's highly sexualized. Um, one of the things that makes me crazy and I'm ranting a little bit, I know is like, I'll, I'll get reviews of, oh, your book has gay characters. Why isn't there graphic sex? I'm like, well, I'm not oh. writing erotica. I'm not writing MMR. Mm-hmm. My character just happens to be gay. And 
he's into dudes, but that's not the focal. I'm writing urban fantasy. I'm writing fantasy. It's not erotica. But some people say they just associate those things together. So despite of, I still can't find the book I'm looking for, prompts me to write the next book. The whole reason I started writing a space opera, I kept finding space operas with gay characters that were still dealing with the prejudices, or they were very sexual in nature. Like, you know, I'd be like, okay, this is a good, oh my gosh, where did that come from? Like, I'm, you know, I don't want, read whatever you're into, write whatever you want to write. But for me, I want, I wanted a gay action hero. And that's pretty much where we got Adam from. <laughs> so it's usually something like that. It's a driver to be able to read what I want to read since I can't find a book like it. And I'll sometimes find a book that's adjacent and say, oh, this is like, I give it to a friend and say, here, this is a book that is close to what I write or what I'm trying to do. And they'll ask why, why are you giving me this? It's like, well, because it's the closest thing I can find, but it's still not quite right what I'm trying to do in my work. Hmm. What are some of the mistakes that you made along the way that you might want to warn listeners about? So hopefully they don't make the same ones. If I could do it all over, if I could start at the beginning trying to write a book for the first time, the first thing I would do is I would stop writing. Stop for a minute. Don't worry, not forever. Sarah just made a face. You didn't get to see it. <laughs> Stop writing for just a little bit and go find three books, preferably first books, debuts, recently published in your genre, meaning in the last three years, five at a stretch. Don't try to write Game of Thrones. Get first books. Game, you got to remember Game of Thrones is like his 30th book. Take those three different books by three different authors. Keep them small. You don't want to get the 800 page monsters and then cut those books apart, outline them, study them, look at word count by chapter, write down the plot, use that story grid method, track that and do that. Break apart three books in your genre that you want to write in, dissect them to that incredible level of detail, put together spreadsheets, look at how they're architected from plot, character, emotional shift, all of that. Stick to word count, because that's probably the biggest thing I see with newer authors trying to go into trad and fantasy where they screw up, is their word count's way out of proportion. The bigger the book, the harder it is to debut with it. If you go out with a 180,000 word monster and it's your first book, you don't have the sales record. And a lot of publishers, there are exceptions, of course, but most publishers will say, that's a lot of ink and paper to take a risk on this. And we don't know that he can sell those books. Do that architecture process, break it all down completely, then write your first book after you've really studied. Whenever, remember I said I ju jump genres a lot? When I need to work in a new genre, that's what I do. Mm. So when I wanted to write this rom-com, I went out and found three rom-coms and broke them down that way. So take that's what I would do if I could do it all over. It would save me so much time on my learning curve. <laughs> It saved me years of learning how to write a book that can sell. Mm. So similar question. Can you share with listeners one of the most important lessons you learned on your journey to publication? The most important lesson I can teach you or tell you is just never give up. Don't let anybody take your writing from you. There's a fine line between overconfidence in your skill and also letting some rejection damage your self-esteem. Like you need to be able to take feedback that's useful, but all advice that you take 
on the road to publication and on the road to your writing journey, whether that's self-published, trad, whatever, is a guideline. There are no absolutes. Like I said a minute ago, every once in a while, somebody debuts with a 180,000 word book. It can happen. It's important to understand that no matter what happens, don't let anyone take your writing away from you. Don't call, let a rejection or mean feedback cause you to quit writing. If writing is a thing you're meant to do, you won't be able to quit. I call this the acknowledgements portion of the podcast because this is not a business that most of us succeed in completely on our own. So who are some of the people or even organizations who helped you along the way? Well, I have to give a big shout out to the Tucson Book Festival because I just got back from there and they were incredibly kind to have me as a guest. And uh, Bob Porter sponsored me to come in memory of his wife, Patricia, which is just I'm going to tear up just talking about it. Such a such a kind gesture to say, hey, let's bring in this like lesser known, you know, writer from a smaller press in. And my agent, Leslie Sagba, who, you know, she reads everything I write and throws feedback at me at one in the morning. So she works tirelessly for her clients. She works tirelessly for me. And she's just an amazing, enthusiastic presence. And I love getting to work with her. She's also incredible at knowing when to find other resources and bring them in. She's just been such a, a big advocate and believer in my work. And we have just the right level of communication. My poor partner, who is kind enough to say, <laughs> sure, go play with your imaginary friends. I'll just fire up a video game. Though if it's five in the morning, I don't have to worry about that. I'm the only one awake. <laughs> Those are some of the people that matter. And then, of course, people like you, Sarah, who, you know, you've had me um, on here, as well as to teach some at the library to help other writers and, you know, share. And then anyone who's part of my communities, whether it's the Pike Peaks Writer Conference or the Rocky Mountain Fiction Writers, those communities have been so fantastic, not just as a place to learn from workshops and mentors, but also as, you know, a sounding board and a resource, you know, to be able to talk to other writers. It's so amazing to be able to surround yourself with people who get it, who get what you're trying to do and have the same passion and frustrations you do. Mm. All right. Before you go, David, can you tell my listeners about the Adam Binder series in case they're interested in checking it out? Sure. So the Adam Binder series is urban fantasy. It's about a broke gay witch named Adam Binder from Guthrie, Oklahoma, who unfortunately gets in way over his head when he has to come to Denver, Colorado to rescue his estranged uh, brother's wife from possession. He's kind of excited to get the chance to say, I told you so, but he goes because he's <laughs> a good guy. He's going to help them out. Things are much worse than he seen, than he thought, than they seem. And at a, it begins a journey of reconciliation as well as a lot of surprises about the past. Uh, Adam falls in love along the way. He has to deal with his first love as well. It's just a ball of fun. It's everything that I love about urban fantasy with an under underdog hero who doesn't have a lot of magic, trying his hardest to do the right thing and screwing up half the time. <laughs> David, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your story with everyone, especially at such uh, last minute notice. <laughs> well, thanks for having me. This is great, Sarah. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Queries, Qualms, and Quirks. You can find out more about David and his books in the links in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show, I'd really appreciate if you'd help me find new listeners by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser telling your friends, or sharing this episode on social media. If you're interested in supporting the show, go to patreon.com slash pubtalklive. 
And if you're a published author interested in being a guest on the show, please click on the home base link in the description or go to sarahnicholas.com and click on the podcast logo in the sidebar. That's Sarah with an H and Nicholas with no H. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.